0: You know, folks, the world unbelievers, those who don't necessarily appreciate the scripture, they have what is in their mind a trump card. You know, all they got to do is use this phrase and and the discussion's over. All they got to do is use this phrase and whatever argument, whatever point you were trying to make is no longer valid. And this is the phrase. Yeah, but that's in the Bible. As if, you know, saying it's in the Bible just means, okay, the whole thing's null and void. Because, you know, we know nothing in the Bible is actually true. You know, I'm not surprised that people don't believe, don't agree, don't like the Scripture. I'm a little bit surprised how quickly it's dismissed. Especially since it has never, boy, never is a big word, isn't it? It has never been disproven. Not historically, not scientifically, not archaeologically. had to get a running start on that one. Not, and certainly not spiritually. It's never been disproven. Now, when I say it's never been disproven, yeah, there's people who say, I don't agree with that. I think that's wrong. Oh, well, times have changed. They can make statements like that. That doesn't disprove the Scripture and actually point out that it's wrong. It has never been disproven. Now, his, history and archaeology at one time thought they had us. For centuries, literally for centuries, history and archaeology would point out, you know, the, the Scripture refers to this king or that king, or it refers to this city or, or that city. And you know what? There's no historical record of that city ever existing. There, there's no historical record of that king. And, you know, so we were kind of, well, oh you know, I don't know why it's in Scripture and we can't find it anywhere else in history, because, of course, if it's only in Scripture, it can't possibly be true. But then archaeology as a science really began to advance as we came into the 1800s and 1900s. And then, of course, Indiana Jones got here and took it really further down the road. But uh, seriously, folks, the science of archaeology really in the last hundred years has just exploded. And guess what happened? One after one, king after king, city after city was found and discovered. And the Bible has been proved again and again and again and again. Never disproven. Never disproven. Even though it is the single most hated book in the history of humanity. Even though almost every field of study has tried to attack it, it just goes on and on, holding to its veracity, holding to its truth. We're continuing today at the very beginning of a long study in theology. We've titled it, What Is... And we're going to be asking that question really for the rest of the year. What is this topic? What is that topic? Last week we began that series, and if you weren't here last week, I don't think I've ever done this. You need to go listen to last week's sermon. You you need to hear it on the radio, the TV this Thursday. You need to go to the Internet and download it. Uh, You need to go to the media desk and, and get a CD. You need to listen to last week's sermon. You need to know God's will, God's desire for your brain. For your mind, for your love of Him in studying and understanding all that He has revealed. Today we're going to continue, or really I guess last week was kind of an introduction, so today we're going to begin our study with a study of what is the Bible. You might think, well gosh, I I would have thought this would have started with what is God. You know, the really big picture. But you know what folks, everything we're going to do for the rest of this year, every source of information we're going to get is going to come from the Bible. So we do have to establish the, the authority of this book that we're using in order to know that everything else we're going to be studying is valid. Today's sermon is not going to equip you to go out and, and debate, to argue. To, you know, you've know, you got those people in your life that like to argue about the Bible. 30 minutes here, you're ready to take them on. You might be in some ways, but more likely, as I said about a lot of these sermons, I hope what they do is inspire you to dig a little bit deeper. Inspire you to go maybe get a, a text, a book, and, and study a little bit more for yourself. And I'm going to try to keep those things in front of you. But, but today by itself will not equip you, will not prepare you to, to take on a debate. What I hope today does is encourage you and embolden your faith in this Word. Because folks, I, what I'm going to suggest today is that the Bible is completely trustworthy and fully sufficient for faith and for life in God. It is everything you need. And the reason for that is because it's incomparable. It's inspired and it's inerrant. Let's take on those three points. Now, I want to say something about the PowerPoint, because what I'm getting ready to do for those of you that like to take notes, I'm going to drive you nuts. Uh, put your seatbelt on. We're running this morning uh, for the rest of this series. Uh, everything we 're doing is going to be on the internet as a matter of fact we 're setting it up so you can go to the internet you can click on our what is the Bible logo and when you click on that you 'll go to a place where it'll give you where you can download the PDF files of, of the powerpoints that you 're going to see each morning you 'll be able to download the the message, if you want to listen to it, you'll be able to keep up with all of the different resources that are being recommended. So if you lose your bulletin, lose your notes, want to go back and fill in the blanks, uh, you can always go and catch up with it right there. First thing we're saying about the Scripture this morning is it is incomparable. Now, let me tell you something cool about the Scripture. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it tells one continuous story all the way through it. Isn't that cool? You're thinking... Don't most books do that? What, what makes that so special? What makes that so incomparable? Well, unlike most books that have one author, the Bible has 40. Over a 1,500-year time span, the Bible was written by over 40 people from every walk of life. Kings, soldiers, peasants, philosophers, commercial fishermen. There was even a tax collector that wound up in there. It was written in the wilderness. It was written in prison. It was written at times of war, it was written at times of peace, it was written when when everybody was living in prosperity, it was living when everybody was living in poverty. It was written during times of great victory and joy, it was written during times of deep depression and loss. Now if you'll just take a moment and think about each of those different things, folks, those are things that totally define who you are. They totally define your, your perspective and the way you look at life and the way you look at God. Think about how different these people would have seen God and life and everything around them. And yet they write a story that sounds like it fits perfectly together. The Bible was written on three different continents. Africa, Asia, and Europe is written in three different languages. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And it addresses a multitude of controversial subjects. Subjects that when people engage in in discussing them, they end up in debate. They end up thinking, having different opinions and ideas on, on marriage and divorce and remarriage and homosexuality and authority and character, God, life, the afterlife. It addresses all of these and does it absolutely in complete harmony. Page after page, chapter after chapter, book after book unfolds as one complete Story is incredible. Let me try to give you an illustration of why I'm saying everything I just explained is so incredible. Let's go over here to Colonial Heights High School and let's get a principal from Colonial Heights High School, just one principal from the 50s. Let's get another one from the 60s, one from the 70s, and on up today. That'd be six principles. Have those six principles write on just three subjects have them write on student discipline, teacher management, and the objectives of education. Have those six guys just write on three topics. Now understand, these guys all speak the same language. They were probably educated for the most part, exactly the same. They sat in the same office. They looked at the same building I mean, they live in an an absolutely homogenous group. Uh, They they look at everything almost exactly the same. And yet you have them write on those three subjects. And not only are there going to be great differences in what they write, there may even be, because of the way education has changed in the last 60 years, there may even be contradictions. So do you see what a unique thing it is that you've got these guys writing over a 1,500-year time span? I mean, life changes in 1,500 years. And yet it unfolds as one story. Most of them did not know that that their writing was going to end up being a part of a larger thing. They didn't know theirs was one piece of the puzzle. And yet it unfolds like this. Because, of course, there was one author, the Lord God. The Bible is incomparable in how it came together. The Bible is also incomparable in its historical validity. And what do I mean by that? You know, when we look at the Bible, we open it up and we see it's written by Isaiah or it's written by Matthew or John or Paul. We have all these different authors. Question is, how do we know they wrote them? How do I know when I open up my Bible and it says Matthew, how do I know I'm reading what Matthew wrote? Because we don't have the piece of paper that Matthew wrote on or Isaiah or John. Now, that's not just true of Scripture. That's true of every ancient writing. We don't have a single piece of paper or or papyri or anything else that sophocles wrote on or that plato wrote on so there again the question is how do we know that we have what those guys wrote if all we're working with is copies i mean what if there was mistakes what if somebody added something what if somebody took something out well literary scholars this is not a christian exercise this is one, so wasn't something they did at seminaries literary scholars came up with a a method of of devising, of studying all the different copies, their agreement, and then trying to determine how sure can we be. Let me show you what that looks like. Look on the screen here. Anybody remember reading Homer's Iliad? Might have read that in high school, maybe college. You're looking at there the single most validated historical document that we have. Now what they do is, Homer's Iliad was written in 800 B.C., the earliest copy we have is 400 B.C. It's 400 year time span. Sounds like a lot of time to you and I, doesn't it? Back then, that, that, that's pretty close. Now, they're not saying then there's 643 copies. They're not saying all 643 copies appeared in 400 B.C. What they're saying is our earliest of the 643 copies was in 400 B.C. That's the number one document. In other words, you can't be more sure of anything than Homer's Iliad. Man, when we're reading this, this is what Homer wrote. 400-year time span, 643 copies. Now, the reason I put the other one up there, that's second place. Look at the drop. Look at the change. It goes from a 400-year time span to a 1,000-year time span. From 643 copies to 20 copies. That's first and second in world history. Now... Let's run the New Testament through this little exercise and see how it compares. The New Testament was written between 80, 50, and 100, to be exact. Galatians, Galatians was the first book written in the New Testament, written in 49 A.D. Last book in the New Testament written was Revelation in 95 A.D. Our earliest copies, we have fragments. As a matter of fact, the fragments uh, are, are out of the book of uh, the Gospel of John. We have fragments dating one, 114 A.D. We have entire books in 200 AD. We have most of the New Testament copies of it in 250 AD and all of it by 325 AD. What's the time span? 50 to 225 years. Now, now history is telling us, no, man, if you can get within 400, you're the best there is in the whole planet. The New Testament, the time range is 50 to 225 years. Look how many documents almost 5,400. You see why I'm saying it's incomparable? There is no second place. Homer's Iliad doesn't hold a candle to the uh, document evidence that we have on the New Testament. Old Testament, same way, except the Old Testament has about 20,000 manuscripts and copies. So the Bible is absolutely incomparable in its validity, in our confidence that we have what was originally written. Now, more than likely, you're not Going to remember these names, these numbers, but what you can say when you're talking to anybody is if you can't trust the New Testament and the Old Testament, then you can't trust anything that's been written in the history of mankind because it is the single most validated source that we have. The Bible is absolutely incomparable. The Bible's also inspired. Now, what do we mean when we say it's inspired? You know, a lot of times when we use that word, say, boy, that song inspired me. That that poem inspired me. Of course, we all leave here every Sunday saying, boy, that pastor, he inspires me. Uh, yeah, he is, I, I'm always inspired by the pastor, to be quite honest with you. But uh, but, you know, you think about that, that's when we say when we use the word that way, we're talking about a feeling, right? We're talking about what something did for us. That's not what the word means as we relate it to Scripture. We're not addressing whether the Bible is inspiring To us, we're saying the Bible is inspired that that was an event that happened to the Bible, an activity that happened to the Bible. Now, what does that mean? Let's turn I want to look at two key passages this morning. Turn with me to Second Timothy, Second Timothy, Chapter three. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some on the chairs in front of you. I hope you'll get one and and read along with us. Second Timothy is kind of in the back half of the New Testament. It's got Thessalonians and Colossians in front of it. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews on the other side of it. So see those books kind of aimed at the middle of those. Second, Timothy strategically placed right after First Timothy. Second, Timothy, chapter three, just going to look at one verse. Verse 16 says all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness. Now, this passage makes three very significant statements about the Scripture. First of all, all Scripture, the entire Bible, is inspired. From Genesis to Revelation, from narrative to poetry to history, to statements it makes about relationships, to statements it makes about science. It is all inspired. Second statement this makes is that the entire Bible is God-breathed. And in that word right there is our definition of inspired. That word in your text that says the entire scripture is inspired in the Greek language, its literal translation is that it is God breathed. It came from God's breath. Every word we just read, every word we read every single Sunday, every time you open the Bible and read it, every single word you're reading originated from the mouth of God. That's what it means when we say this text is inspired, is that it originated from the mouth of God. And because of that, we can also make the third statement, and that is that every bit of it, every bit of Scripture is profitable. That's the purpose of inspiration, is to give us something that that profits our life. It teaches us, it corrects us, it disciplines us, it restores us. It trains you and it trains me to be right with God, and that we might be right with each other. Every bit of it is profitable. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always feel like every bit of it's profitable, do we? Now we go to John 3.16, we go maybe to a passage like this and say, yeah, I really understand that. That really helps me. But then we cruise over, probably by accident, and we land in Leviticus. We're saying, This, this doesn't seem that profitable. I mean, there's whole chapters. Explaining how the priestly garments are to be made, there's whole chapters detailing what an animal sacrifice should look like and the different kinds of animal sacrifices and when and how those are to be done. And it's pretty easy for you and I to say, you know, that that's not so profitable. That's I don't need that. That's that's not so relevant. So I mean, what does that mean by all Scripture is inspired, all of it's profitable? Well, it means just that, every bit of it. Leviticus is just as profitable for you and I who do not need to go through animal sacrifices. It's just as profitable for you and I who do not need to know about the priestly garments. It's just as profitable for us today as it was them. Now, granted, it takes a pretty open mind. It takes a lot of prayer and a little bit of research and study to understand as you dive into this book to understand why it's so profitable. But, you know, one of the biggest things we're missing in American theology is any concept and understanding of holiness. You know what holiness for us is? is, is I'm, better than, I'm better than a lot of people. He's a holy person. He's really good compared, compared to others. Holiness for us is something we do on a bell curve. You know, better than the most. It's average. But you know what? When I dive into Leviticus, and I start reading through this minutia. These minute details about those priestly garments, about these sacrifices, and just detail after detail after detail. You know what I learned? Holiness is not an average. Holiness is incredibly specific. It is incredibly detailed. Holiness is not something you kind of do. It's very exact. As a matter of fact, the more you understand about holiness, the more you understand how desperately... You need a savior. Because you can't follow all those details. See, that's something that I need to profit by, that I need to learn helps me respect and appreciate and love my savior a little bit deeper. You know, one of the biggest questions on our savior is why the cross? Why all that blood? Why did it have to be there? You know, what book explains that more than any other book in in the Bible? Leviticus. Leviticus introduces to us the concept of the blood sacrifice, its value to life, its value to holiness, its value to God. And when God was laying all those animal sacrifices out and everything that was going to be done and you read that and realize ultimately he's writing about what's going to have to happen to his own son. See, folks, Leviticus gives me maybe as well as any book in the Bible, a tremendous love and appreciation for my savior and his father who sent him to the cross. Leviticus is as profitable as any book in the Bible. Now, granted, when I open it up, I've got to understand what Paul told me. It's all profitable. Every bit of it. Now, we know that it originated from God's mouth. That's what it says. But how did it get to the paper? How does it get to you and me today? There's one other verse I want us to look at. Very important. Flip over to 2 Peter. Go to the right through James, Hebrews, Hebrews, James, then Peter. Strategically placed after guess what book? 1 Peter. Brilliant. See how smart this series is already making us? 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 20. It says verse 21 up there, but I'm going to start in verse 20 says, first of all, you should know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, moved by the Holy Spirit, men spoke from God. Folks, that verse tells us how we got the Bible. Men, moved by the Holy Spirit, received this from God. Now to understand this a little bit more, we can run around in the New Testament, and that same word right there, "moved," is used in Acts 27:15. When you go to Acts chapter 27, you find Paul there. He's on a ship. He's moving from one place to another, obviously traveling, a large group of people on the ship, and a hurricane-like storm comes on the ship. And, and, and the sailors are fighting it. I mean, they're, they're, they're hoping not to die. They're hoping the ship is not going down. They're out there in the midst of this hurricane-type storm, and, and they're fighting it. And it, finally, it says that the, the sailors couldn't fight the storm anymore, so they just let the storm move them along. Same word. Now, the sailors didn't say, okay, we quit. We're going down the whole ship and taking a nap. The sailors didn't leave. They didn't go to sleep. They didn't become inactive. There was just a greater force. They're still working on the ship. They're still working with the ship. But now there is a greater force determining how and where and the speed at which that ship moves. There's a greater force determining the direction of that ship now. And they worked along with the storm. That's the same thing that happened with God's Word. God's Word is not separate from humanity. The the writers didn't become, you know, zombie-like dictators, taking dictation. No, they're still there. You read the Scripture, you see in each individual writer, you see their personality, you see their perspective, you see their particular writing style. But there was a greater force moving them. Just like that storm that moved that ship, the Holy Spirit moved these men to make sure that when I read each word in here, from Genesis to Revelation, that I would be getting the exact Word that originated from God's mouth. Not only did the Holy Spirit guarantee that we got the Word, we got the the, the page, but then the Holy Spirit ran down to the end of the process and worked with the nation of Israel and then worked with the elders of the church to make sure that we got the entire thing. That the 66 books we have are the 66 books God intended for us to have. The Holy Spirit moved those councils, moved those believers to not say we've decided that's the word of God, but to acknowledge, to recognize what was the word of God and what was not. So the Holy Spirit moved us to make sure we got the words and that we got the 66 books that belong to God. The Bible is incomparable The Bible is inspired. And lastly, we can count on it being fully trustworthy, fully sufficient for our lives because it is inerrant. It is without error. Can you imagine saying something like that on this planet? I mean, you're holding this book in here. There's nothing like it on the whole planet because it's without error. And think of the best things on the planet. We've got uh, a, y'all ever heard of a guy named Bill Gates? Wrote some software. Yeah, he's like the best ever at it, isn't he? I mean, think, think how much of the world is being run by Windows at this moment right now. I mean, it's the very best. And you've got to get updates and you've got to get patches because there's glitches, there's mistakes. And, and then when your computer tries to download the updates, it won't take the updates. I and mean, this is the best there is, and it's filled with problems. Go to another way of looking at this in a couple of months. We're going to enjoy a, a summer classic we call the All-Star Game. And you're going to see out there on the diamond, 18 of the best baseball players in the entire world. They're the very best. You don't get any better. And yet, when you look at every single one of their statistics, there's what? Errors. Yeah, I mean, that's humanity, right? We make mistakes. We have errors. When you attach humanity to it, there's going to be errors. Oh, but wait a minute. Now, we know that this word originated from God's mouth, but it it came through people. I mean, humanity is attached to this book. Doesn't that mean there's the possibility of of errors creeping in, of of mistakes being made? Well, first of all, let's look and see what the Scripture says about itself. Look at this under inerrancy. The Scripture is presented as divine authority, unbreakable, uh, imperishable. It is the final authority on all things. There's no errors, there's no glitches, no need for an update, no need to change because, you know, well, we live in a new day and we look at things differently. The Scripture also presents itself as completely trustworthy. It is the Word of God. We've already looked at that. It presents itself as completely true. Of course, God is completely truthful. If this originated from God's mouth and then it lands here as error, then God's no longer completely trustworthy. It also presents itself as true in history and in science. So the Bible does make that claim of itself that it is without error, that it is completely true, that it is completely trustworthy. But here again, humanity touched it. So, so how do we know humanity didn't introduce error to it? Folks, we should look at the Bible the same way we look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is 100% deity. He is God. He has the power of God. He has the authority of God. He does things that only God can do. 100% deity. But of course, when he entered this world, what was added to him? 100% humanity. And that's that's real humanity. I mean, the scripture shows us him tired, hungry, thirsty. It shows him expressing a range of of human emotions. He bled. He was human, but that humanity did not force His deity to error. It did not force the deity to sin. The deity held that error-free product intact in Jesus. Same is true of Scripture. Just as the Son of God is 100% deity and 100% humanity, the Word of God is. Is 100% deity and it's 100% humanity. It originated from God's mouth. It is His word. It came through humans, their perspective on life, their personality, their writing style. But that humanity does not force it to err. You know why people want to put error in the Bible? You know why we want to strip Christ of deity? Just makes it easier to reject. I mean, you can applaud Jesus all day long as the greatest prophet in the history of mankind. You can, you can applaud the Bible as one of the most inspirational, the most wonderful books of all time. But if it's just man, then I can do with it what I want, right? If it's just, maybe the most wonderful words men have written, but if it's just man, I can reject it without consequence. That's why mankind fights to strip the word of God of its deity. Fights to strip Christ of its deity. Because we want to be able to reject without consequence. Let me tell you two reasons. Boy, there's a lot of reasons. Let me tell you two reasons I believe the Bible is absolutely trustworthy. Number one, Jesus affirms every bit of it. Jesus referred to the historical characters of Adam and Eve. He referred to the historical event uh, of Jonah and the great fish. One you know that's what we would call one of the more unbelievable stories in the Old Testament. Yet Jesus refers to it as an actual historical fact, an actual historical event. He refers to a multitude of miracles, the prophets, he quotes them. He sees every bit of that as fact. Now folks, one thing you'll hear all the time is, man, you know what? Every religion, every religion has its holy book. Every religion has its It's it's leader. It's God. And there's just one different. Ours rose from the dead. I can prove that, too. We're going to do that later in this series. We can historically prove that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And you know what, folks? And this is just me. That makes his opinion a little bit different. I'm going to weigh his opinion a little bit different than all the other holy books, all the other so-called holy people and religions. I weigh his a little bit different because he rose from the dead. He believed everything in here was true. I'm going to go with his thoughts till I see anybody else that can conquer the grave. Second reason I believe it is because of fulfilled prophecy. Now, folks, you know, a lot of times in our day and age, when we think of prophecy, because prophecy is what's to come, right? we think of the second coming of Christ. But I use the word fulfilled there. You see, not all of the Bible's prophecy is referring to stuff that hasn't happened yet. There was a lot of times that the Bible was telling the the future, and then that future got here. There's a lot of prophecy about the first coming of Christ. And folks, when the Bible tells the future, it's not this foolishness of Nostradamus. I was watching a story on him the other day on the History Channel. You know my thoughts on that channel. Even the followers of Nostradamus will acknowledge how utterly vague his predictions are. Uh, They were reading the the one that predicted uh, Hitler. you can apply that to everything. I mean, his future telling is so vague. And even then, he misses most of it. The Bible gives details, gives dates, names the names of kings before they're even born. Oh, well, that's easy. The Jews would just make sure their king got that name. No, it names the names of pagan kings that will rise up and release the Jews. It gives dates. It gives these minute details. And do you know what? It's been right 100% of the time. Now, folks, how many times, what, what batting average do you need when something's telling the truth about the future and it gets it right over and over and over and over sooner or later? You guys say, you know, there might be something special happening here. I might might just ought to pay a little bit close attention to this. That's just two reasons. That's two reasons I accept it as completely trustworthy, fully sufficient. And of course, everything I've said this morning, folks, means one thing. When I read it, I got to obey it. You know, when you read this book, you're you're going to find things in here you don't like. You're going to find things in here you disagree with. You're going to find things in here that are going to fly in your face because they're going to say there's something wrong with your face. There's something wrong with your life. It's not right, and there's a consequence for that. And we we get bristled at that. It makes us angry. But as you've heard me say so many times before, if you don't like something in here, please keep this in mind. Your problem's not with the pastor. Your problem's not with Baptist or any other denomination. Your problem is with God. Because everything you came in here started from His mouth. Let me tell you something else about everything in here it's for you. Every bit of it's for you. It is for you to know and to relate with the living God. It is for you to know and be able to live in the life He has designed. Now, let me tell you something real quickly. Everything in your life outside of that relationship, everything in your life outside of the design he has for you, is the source of every problem you have in life. You do not have a single problem in this world that results from what this scripture says. This word is for you. Now, let me tell you two things couple things I'm not telling you this morning. You remember I said with every one of these, we got 20 what is questions we're going to answer. Some of those questions are going to be one sermon. Some are going to be a couple of sermons. And I've told you all we're trying to do is just kind of get started. Get the information out there. Hopefully inspire on a couple of these topics to go research a little bit more. So I want you to know for a f- very clearly what you did not hear today. You didn't hear anything about canonization. Canonization, we, we're blowing off canons. When does that happen? canonization is the word that embodies how did we get the 66 books who decided those were the 66 books actually it's 39 and 27 the old and the new who decided that who decided what books didn't make it now that whole debate's kind of come popular lately hasn't it there's a little well-known book uh, the da vinci code kind of thrust all of that in front of our face. And of course, the goal of the Da Vinci Code was to cast doubt on all of the 66 books and say that anything didn't make it in here. Now, those are the ones we're to be following. That does raise the question, how did we get that? Okay, well, folks, that that question is really pretty interesting and it's well answered, easy to understand. I did a sermon series on the Da Vinci Code where I dealt with how did we get the 66 books? Let's look at the character and the nature of the books that did not make it in. And that sermon series is at the desk. Some of the books we've recommended will outline that process for you. So we didn't talk anything about canonization. We didn't talk anything today about interpretation. That's actually a big one, isn't it? That's probably what you hear more than anything else out there. Well, you know, how do you trust the Bible? I I don't read the Bible. There's so many interpretations. You ever heard that phrase? There's so many interpretations. Next time somebody says that to you, say, no, there's not. There's not a lot of interpretations. Now, what they're what they're referring to often is the debates they see inside of denominations or between denominations. Well, we we look at the Bible this way. Well, we take it that way. Folks, I understand those things are running around out there. But when you talk about orthodox, conservative, evangelical Christianity, there's not a lot of different ways that we're approaching every single passage in the Bible. Yeah, we've got some things that we do differently. and Well, you know, we believe baptism ought to look like this and be like this and other denominations as well. It can be done this way. But folks, the tremendous bulk of Christian teaching is not wide open for all these interpretations. That's a smokescreen. Don't buy it. We didn't talk much today, and it's kind of an interesting conversation, but you know what is the difference between the NIV, the NASB, the King James, the Holman Christian? That's what we use in here. That's what's in the chairs, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. But folks, I always say, gather up three or four, and and open them all up. Hold them side by side. Read John 3.16 in all of them. Read Psalm 23 in all of them. There's no difference. There's no great difference. There's nothing that affects the meaning of any of those passages in lining them up. We didn't address much today about the supposed problems of the Bible. You know, the Bible says over and over, you're not to be jealous. Then it describes God as being jealous. Is that a contradiction? You got one gospel that says there was one angel at the tomb. You got another gospel that says there was two angels at the tomb. Is that a contradiction? Got all these little things. Like that. Oh, my favorite one, where'd Cain get his wife? Ah, you know, there's no answer there. There's got to be something wrong with the Bible. Well, folks, there's a matter of fact, look inside your bulletin real quickly. I've got your, my book recommendations for the day in there. There's a fun book, Gleason Archer's book, The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. It takes on a lot of these. And you don't read it like page one to the end. You, you read it like an encyclopedia. You look up the question you know, your uncle's bashing you with that week, and you, you find the answer to it, and then you go back and... It, no, you don't go back and bash him. That's not what our goal is. Okay? But that it's a thick book. It takes on all these supposed errors, these these contradictions that people accuse the Bible of, deals with them one by one, very believable answers. Uh, Seven reasons why you can trust the Bible by Erwin Lutzer. That's a that's a short read, hundred. 50-something pages like that, very readable, well-written, uh, deals with the broad topic. And then uh, I've been telling you, I told you last week about this book. This is the one I'm going to refer to a lot during this series, Theology You Can Count On. Uh, again, as I said last week, you've got a heavy door to keep open. This is the book to get right here. That baby's got some, some weight and some girth to it. This retails for $40. Uh, we got it through a discount place for $30, and uh, we got, I think, 40 or 50 copies of these. Uh, here today. So if you're interested in this, want to get this, uh, we have that available uh, today that you can get out there. And what I may even do is even tell you what chapters you might want to read ahead when we're coming up. Uh, on, on a subject or a topic, so but you can go to those, go, go to these kinds of materials and find the answers to those kinds of things. I told you I can't get to it all. I just want to throw it. I want to throw the key ideas out there in front of us, get us started going in it. What I hope you leave, leave here with today, folks, is a faith, is a confidence, man. When I sit down and open this book, I am hearing what God wanted to say to me, on that topic, on that issue, on that belief. This is what God said. Folks, this is what you tie your life to. This is what you anchor your life to. This is what you should build. Did I say should? This is what you have to build your life on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that you would communicate to us. That you're not a, as some have described, a watchmaker God. You created the watch, wind it, and let it go on its own but rather you are intimately evolved with the affairs of your creation. You have revealed yourself and you have revealed for us everything we need to know how to walk faithfully and rightly with you and with others through this life. Oh God, would you build in our heart and our mind a dedication, a commitment, a discipline to read, to study, to memorize, to pray over this precious holy book. Your word to us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen.